Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our landmark series with SSL, ASL, and today we uh, we are going to discuss the paper, Randomized Controlled Trials Examining Perioperative Chemotherapy and Postoperative Adjuvant Chemotherapy for Receptable Colorectal Liver Metastases. This is our continuation uh, in discussing the colorectal papers. Um, as our last paper alluded to, um, talking about the management of um, lateral lymph nodes, this paper is going to be talking about yet another very commonly um, occurring scenario in surgical oncology is colorectal liver metastases. And who better to discuss the topic than the author of this landmark series and an expert in this field, uh, Dr. Jean Bote. He's the chair of the HPP section at MD Anderson. He did his medical school as well as surgical training at Lausanne in Switzerland and moved to the States um, in, two th- in 2000. He has been at MD Anderson for, the, for nearly last 20 years. He is best known for authoring the algorithm for hepatic colorectal liver metastases. He's also known for creating the standardized method for calculating the volume of the anticipated liver remnant prior to liver surgery. He is the chair of the American Joint Committee on Cancer Hepatobiliary and Pancreas Task Force for the 8th edition. He has pioneered the the use of two-stage hepatectomy for patients in advanced metastatic colorectal carcinoma to liver. As you can tell, uh, as I am reading this introduction, he is the perfect person to be discussing this landmark series. Um, So we are so honored to have you on our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, let's begin our discussion on this landmark paper. Before we delve uh, into the paper a bit more, I want to brief you about the two school of thoughts that currently go on the management of colorectal liver metastases. One involves upfront surgery followed by adjuvant chemotherapy, and this is typically oxaliplatin-based. Secondly, is your perioperative approach, which includes a short course of chemotherapy-based to target micrometastases, followed by surgery for resectable liver mets. The adjuvant course on this is usually more individualized and um, directed by multidisciplinary uh, approach for the patient. So without further ado, Dr. Wote, can you take us through the landmark paper on, papers on post-operative adjuvant therapy and its current status in the world of colorectal liver metastases. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gupta. Thank you very much for the, the kind invitation and the, uh, the opportunity to discuss our experience and, and this paper, which is, uh, which is really a summary of uh, <clears throat> um, the um, huge work that has been done um, in uh, colorectal liver metastasis, huge work, level one evidence, uh, and uh, and it's appropriate to discuss it because it's a controversial 
level one. So it's a level one without being a level one. And, and uh, <clears throat> here we, we're talking about um, uh, metastatic colorectal cancer, a disease that's, um, that's um, associated with a very high risk of recurrence um, after resection. It's not like resecting a primary where you have a 30% chance of recurring. Here you have 70, 80% chance of recurring. Uh, conversely, in this context, when you look at patients, you, um, you, uh, you see that the survival is not so bad. You look at patients who have resection of colorectal liver metastasis, they have a survival, which is around 60%. So why, why is that? Why? And, and the reason is we have very effective and safe chemotherapy that can um, um, treat this disease or delay delay the, the, <clears throat> the progression of this disease, first line, second line, and even third line. We have level of evidence, level one of evidence um, for treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer. Now here, we're talking about the subset of patients, obviously patients who have limited disease, disease that's uh, in the liver only, or perhaps you may have um, one site of extrahepatic disease and you may consider resection. Uh, you have also a great heterogeneity in these patients. You have patients who present uh, with the primary in place um, and, and it could be a rectal primary, which, which makes it much more complex. So it's not like we have a patient who presents with, uh, with, with, with one liver metastasis and you have to make a decision. No, because the patient may also have received chemotherapy as adjuvant for the primary. So all this has to kind of uh, hit your, your, um, your cortex as a resident and as a fellow, and you have to connect with that and say, what am I going to do with this patient? Uh, the patient is very unique, in fact, in this context. So very difficult to do randomized study, quality randomized study in this population. Now, to answer your first question, and I'm coming to your first question, um, you have the adjuvant uh, trial, the post-op trial, the adjuvant trial. And if you look at these trials on table one, um, you have three trials. In fact, there are four now, if you think about it. There are four trials. There's just a trial that, have, that was uh, presented at ASCO this year. So for those who listen to the podcast, they will be up to date and uh, you have four trials, and two trials um, were um, on adjuvant, adjuvant 5-FU, and, and they showed an improvement in disease-free survival. Uh, not overall survival. It's always disease-free survival or progression-free survival. We like to use disease-free survival because you make the patient disease-free with your liver resection. And you have a... a on the table, you have two trials of adjuvant 5-FU, so they were positive. So yes, you should use 5-FU, just as you do in, um, in, uh, in Baldac cancer. You use 5-FU or Zelodas adjuvant, and it will work. It will improve uh, the outcome, specifically the disease-free survival. 
Then you have one trial or third trial. It's important to look at it and to mention it. It's by issue, is on irinotecan. And as you look at it, irinotecan is not a good adjuvant drug. And this trial was a sort of a replay of an adjuvant trial using irinotecan that was done after resection of the primary. So we have sort of confirmation of a lack of efficacy here um, uh, in the metastatic setting after liver resection of a poor adjuvant chemotherapy, uh, irinotecan. Uh, the fourth trial I was just mentioning, and I'm, I'm not going to dwell on it. You guys um, who listen can go to the ASCO, but, but it's like Kanematsu, and it's an adjuvant for Fox. So now there is adjuvant for Fox after liver resection uh, uh, by the uh, Japanese clinical oncology group, and they demonstrated an improvement in disease-free survival. So we have all the toys and tools here to improve the disease-free survival in this patient. Now, the, the, the uh, problem with the, with the adjuvant, as always, is will the patient receive it? Will the patient receive it? Will the patient recover from liver surgery? Will the patient be up to it? And it's a sort of a replay of what you have uh, uh, <clears throat> for pancreas cancer, where you know we, we, we now prefer we moving to pre-op. So I think in, if you look at the surgical oncology um, in aggregate, I think there's been a move to pre-op because it's better than post-op because there's a lot of stuff you can um, 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 deduct and you can uh, clinically evaluate if you do the pre-op. And, and so when you say that, you mean not only will the patient get it, but you can observe how, how the cancer biology is responding to. Right, right. And that's, that takes us to the table two of the paper, in fact. We could look at the table two now if you, if you agree with that, and we can discuss that. Yeah. So, so what, what, uh, <clears throat> what we, we, we have done, if, if you look at surgical oncology, we're moving to pre-op. We move to pre-op um, uh, for rectum. We moving to pre we move to pre-op for rectum um, with with chemo radiation for pancreas. Now for resectable pancreas, more and more uh, there's still resistance. And now, if you look at um, <clears throat> metastatic um, colorectal cancer that's resectable, uh, you have uh, two trials of perioperative. Two trials of perioperative. You have a French trial, the EPOC, and you have the new EPOC, which is a UK trial, multi-center trials, and, and, and they have both been updated. So the advantage of these trials is that really you have solid data based on, uh, on uh, uh, median follow-ups, um, uh, very, very long median follow-ups, in fact, uh, of uh, 80 to 100 months um, in the second report from Nordinger and the second report for Bridgewater. So um, let's look first at the Nordinger trial. Uh, this is a very good trial because uh, uh, <clears throat> it was innovative when it was proposed and, uh, and um, it, um, it looked at 
for Fox, which is used as adjuvant for uh, primary colorectal cancer uh, after resection. And, um, and the trial was comparing perioperative for Fox to surgery alone. Uh, the trial was very well conducted in terms of uh, surgical resection and quality of surgery uh, uh, at centers with, with, with experience. Uh, and, and the trial was a negative trial on intent to treat, but it was uh, a, a trial that in, in, uh, in patients uh, analyzed based on the patients who underwent surgery, so that's not intent to treat, but in patients who underwent surgery, it showed an improvement in disease-free survival. So I would say it's a negative trial, but some could consider it as a positive trial in this subset. What, what was the cause of, I'm sorry for interrupting. Do, do you know what the cause for most drop like conversions to, to not treatment group were a result of? Does it, in order to help us understand the difference between the intention to treat analysis and the, the, um, so, so there were some patients who never went, we never went to surgery. Um, and, uh, they were just, um, you know, they were just excluded here. Um, uh, in the analysis. The, the, the problem also in a trial like this is the, when do you start the uh, analysis of the data? Do you start the analysis of the data before surgery or after surgery? And if you look, in fact, at the, at the survival curve, they don't start at the same time in this trial. Very difficult to, to, to conduct a randomized trial with with a sort of a, an endpoint, which is, you know, you don't know if it's pre-op, if in, in, in the, you know, in the surgery alone group, this, this patient has surgery earlier than the others and, and very, very hard to analyze the data. But anyway, if you look at the, 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 this trial and the next trial, uh, you look at the numbers also, you have to look at the numbers in those trials. Um, 350 patients, uh, about 300, 350 in the uh, uh, epoch, original epoch, and about 350 in the new epoch. Um, that's a small number to show efficacy of a drug. If you look at the, at the, um, at the randomized trials uh, that looked at the e efficacy and uh, the improvement of survival of Folfox, Bevacizumab, whatnot, Irinotecan, Folfiri, Folfox, large uh, cohort of patients, 800, 1,000. So I think, I think uh, the main criticism of those trials is that they're underpowered for what they're meant to show because they are meant to show the efficacy of a drug, and 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 it's very hard to accrue um, uh, in randomized surgical patients, as you know. Now, the new EPOC trial um, uh, showed that essentially it was a, it was a, it was a surprise uh, because the hope was that a targeted agent would improve uh, the overall outcome, uh, but. Uh, the, the first analysis showed, in fact, that it, uh, it was uh, harmful in terms of uh, 
the uh, progression-free survival. And then the, the second analysis is was overall survival also showed that it was not only not effective, but harmful. And there have been a lot of discussion on, on the reasons why this didn't become, uh, why this difference. And if you look at the survival curve, uh, the survival curve separate very early and, and seem to be separated right from the beginning. So, um, and uh, uh, it's hard to understand. And, 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 and uh, uh, post on from, from Liverpool questioned the quality of the surgery. Um, the authors of the trials, uh, Primrose and Bridgewater, in the discussion of the, of the update of the trials, said, well, we also treated initially some patients, included some patients in this trial who were KRAS mutant, and, and that was not a good, good thing. Uh, and then uh, maybe um, um, cetaximab uh, is causing resistance. And we know that. We know that if we give cetaximab for a while, uh, to patients uh, with KRAS wild type, they can become KRAS mutants. So there may be this effect, but we really don't know what caused this difference in, in uh, major difference. So anyway, so this buried essentially cetaximab and, uh, and this trial and this approach. So we left with this um, randomized trial and it's the EPOC trial. And I have to say at MD Anderson, we had to make a decision initially when we, we started approaching these patients. I think there's a, there's, a, <clears throat> uh, there's a decision you have to make when you approach a disease. You want to approach the disease in a uniform fashion to learn about the disease. And uh, we thought the, the, the EPOC trial uh, offered sufficient guarantee in terms of safety in terms of design to be applied to our patients. And that, that's the, the main thing. So, um, so we, we are using this approach with bevacizumab. And that's another thing. You, um, Dr. Gupta, I'm sure you have that among your questions that I'm anticipating. But uh, we're using the uh, perioperative Fox uh, with bevacizumab in the pre-op setting, not in the post-op setting. So anyway, so we, we have, uh, and I can give you the reason why we're doing this rather than, um, than going with a post-op in a moment, if you want. I want you to ask your questions also. I don't want to talk by myself. No, go ahead. Absolutely. No, that was a great segue. That was, you read my mind. I was going to get, get onto that, but tell us a little bit more about bevacizumab. Um, when did this drug come into market? What exactly are we targeting and why give it preoperative uh, rather than adjuvant? Tell us a little bit more about this. Right. So, so bevacizumab, <clears throat> I don't think is a very good adjuvant drug. Um, um, it's, uh, it, was, uh, it was approved in 2003, so it was approved very quickly, I think one year after oxaliplatin was approved, and, 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 and we, we studied it um, initially uh, to demonstrate whether or not it was safe to use 
um, in the setting of liver resection. And we learned a lot and we learned that we had to wait for about five weeks or six weeks. Some people uh, omit the last cycle. Uh, they give four, um, they give, they give, uh, most people give four or six cycle, two months or three months, but omit the bevacizumab um, um, during the last cycle of pre-op um, oxaliplatin. And um, it's, it was shown not to increase the complication following surgery, not to affect liver regeneration. Uh, you, could, uh, you could do a portal vein embolization, regeneration would be the same. I mean, there were a lot of questions that we had to answer. And then we, we, we studied it also in terms of um, its, uh, its effect on the tumor. Um, and we showed that, in fact, there was a benefit in terms of pathologic response, not complete pathologic response, but percent of viable tumor cell. And it was improved by vesuzumab. And then we showed that there was a decrease in sinusoidal injury. So we, we, we showed some effect. And also, um, uh, in about 50% uh, of the patient, a uh, morphologic radiologic change. The tumor became cystic, and, and we liked that. We liked that uh, when we looked at the CTs, at the interface between the tumor and the vessels, and you do the liver resection, it helped. So we have kept that. And the reason is that we, um, we have this, 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 I had this big review in front of me on adjuvant uh, trial in resectable patients. But I think what you have to do is look at this in the context of metastatic colorectal cancer. I think to, to say that this disease is different from metastatic colorectal cancer um, with disease in the lung or elsewhere is a little bit you cheating. You know, you say, okay, this is a surgical disease. Now I'm going to treat it differently. Uh, and, and so if you look at 4-FOX-BEV, it's approved for the treatment of stage 4 disease, and that's why you, we're using it, essentially. And, and we find the benefit in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, imaging, in terms of response, and, and, and we, we like the, the perioperative because the perioperative approach is not, well, I see the patient, the patient is a high risk and low risk. I will give chemotherapy pre-op if the patient is high risk. How can you tell whether a patient is high risk or not high risk in this disease? I mean, how can you predict that this is going to be the patient who's not going to recur? Very hard to tell, almost impossible. So we, 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 you, could do a, you can do a colorectal risk score at presentation, but you don't know. You have a, a, a patient who presents upfront and you don't know wh whether the patient is gonna drop the CEA and have a marvelous response and, and shrink the, the, the tumor. And now you have to, to, to understand that, obviously this is, a, this is a, you know, not a one size fit all approach because if the patient has received chemotherapy within one year, we're not going to treat the patient again preoptively. We're not going to treat the patient. 
we're just going to take the patient to surgery. So that's also something treatment with chemotherapy of any kind within one year, and we try to go to surgery. Now, if it's borderline resectable, we're going to give a second line and, and, and try to treat with a second line for Fury, for instance, for Fury Bab. And in young patients, we go for Fofoxiribab. So we, we do know that this is a surgical podcast. So I'm going to go a little bit off topic here, off from the landmark paper. But since we have you and your expertise here, um, um, could you comment on the two-stage hepatectomy uh, that you do at MD Anderson? Um, and my second follow-up question that I have seen in taking care of colorectal liver meds uh, patients is the question of disappearing liver metastases after preoperative um, uh, chemotherapy. Uh, could you comment on um, the principles um, that as residents and as fellows in surgical oncology, we should be keeping in mind. So let's talk about the disappearing and then we're going to talk uh, about the, the two stage. So I think it's a very important question. So when you see the patient for the first time, you should obtain a CT abdomen, pelvis and chest. CAP, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. You should obtain that, and you should obtain a high-quality CT of the liver. You should insist on the quality of your imaging. Try to keep the, the CT as your, your quality image at your institution. You can still use MRI, but I would say do that. And then that's your baseline. And then the patient's gonna be evaluated at least three times before surgery if you use the perioperative approach. If you're gonna do a CT before chemo, you're gonna do the CT after chemo, and then you're gonna CT pre-op. Your CT pre-op should not be older than four weeks. You should have a CT that's recent when you operate a patient for cancer. So you, um, you, you do this evaluation, but at the first city, at the first evaluation, I asked my team to indicate in the impression which type of surgery we're going to do or we plan to do at this point. And it, it needs to be recorded. And, and, and you censor at that point all the metastasis. Now you have the small metastasis, particularly the small and deep, which may present as a problem. So you have, you, have this, you have small metastases that are, will, be, um, will be missing, okay? Uh, uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's a problem. The missing is a problem. Disappearing is not a problem. If small metastases disappear and you plan to do a right hepatectomy and you have two or three small metastases in the right lobe, you know, that's, that's no problem. But, you know, the that's disappearing. So you look for the missing, that the one are gonna miss, okay? And, and, and when they are not capsular, when they are somewhat deep, and they are less than two centimeters, you can take one, one and a half centimeter, you start worrying about them. And you think about putting fiduciary markers, and you are fine after that. 
you, 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 you will. And, 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 and you have to do it because, you know, it's, a, it's a, usually it's in the setting of multiple metastases and, and you don't want to take this patient upfront for surgery. You don't want to give this patient a post-op, an adjuvant chemotherapy. So you are, you are uh, in a situation where you have to mark them and ask radiology to do it. Uh, if, if you don't do that, I think you, you run the risk of you know, having this metastasis um, uh, resurface at some point, um, or you will, do, you will try to do catch up with an MRI. If you see the metastasis with MRI, it doesn't mean you're gonna see it by ultrasound at surgery. So the proposition, uh, you know, we do MRI, we see the small metastasis, you see a lot of things with MRI. You see a lot of small biliary adenomas. You see a lot of, uh, you don't know what it is. Is this a tiny hemangioma? Is this a, and, and so you do an MRI in 20 to 30% of the patient, you find more. And what do you do with it? You, you, you have a problem of, uh, of sensitivity specificity. So yes, you're more sensitive, but are you specific? You don't know. And then, you, you are in a situation also with the patient where you're going to have to start discussing all these lesions. So I tend not to do the MRI unless there are special circumstances, unless the patient has a high BMI, steatotic liver, and, 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 and that's quite appropriate. And, and that should be part of the initial evaluation. Uh, when the metastasis is, is big enough, you can still say it's a MET or it's not a MET. So, is that good for the disappearing, or you have more question for the disappearing? Okay. So, so yeah, you put coils there. Make sure they put the coils behind the lesion because you're gonna go uh, from front to back, usually front to back. So, so that as you have the coil, you know you have the lesion, and uh, and you go to pathology and make sure they have it. Uh, and, but that's really very, very helpful. Not because nothing worse than going to surgery and not finding a lesion. That's a very embarrassing or oh, do a blind resection. And, uh, I've been in situation where, you know, you think it's there and eventually it's not there and, and it doesn't look good. So, um, so that's for the, the, the missing, not the disappearing. Now we go to the, to the two-stage hepatectomy. Two-stage hepatectomy is, um, has been developed for patients with bilateral metastasis, usually small metastasis. And um, um, we used to approach these patients with, at many centers, used to have a, a right hepatectomy and then ablation of the left lobe. We looked at our series, in fact, compared a two-stage hepatectomy to right hepatectomy with ablation of the left lobe, intraoperative ablation. And that's not good. Ablation of the liver remnant is not a good idea because it's, uh, it produces a lot of heat. It heats the liver. And, um, and then you have a liver remnant that has to regenerate in the setting of a thermal injury. Uh, and in fact, when you look at... <clears throat> first stage versus ablation, you're sparing more liver when you do 
a first stage resection, removing small mats than if you ablate the lesions. And, the, uh, and, and, and in any case, if you look at the left liver and specifically the left lateral bisegment, it's very small. So um, you want to minimize the injury there. So this, this um, uh, procedure was developed by um, René Adam at Paul Bruce. Interestingly, the first paper, if you look at his first paper in 2002 or 2003, you look at it and in fact, the first stage was the right side and the second stage on the left side, reverse of what we're doing now. Uh, but now we're doing a first stage partial hepatectomy, removing the metastasis in the left liver or in the left lateral liver. And we do the portal vein embolization at the same time in a hybrid room. It's a fast track now, uh, two stage. So we do the two procedures. In fact, we do three, three encounters in one because we do the first stage partial left in that special operating room, hybrid room. We do the portal vein embolization and then we do the post first stage CT. We have a CT on rail. So we do the CT. So it's very convenient for the patient. Then the patient stays one or two or three days in the hospital, gets discharged, and then four weeks later, we do patients come, the patient comes back. We look at the, we do another CT, look at the regeneration, look at the, look at two things. We look at degree of hypertrophy, and kinetic growth rate. So um, the degree of hypertrophy is better than the absolute remnant volume. Uh, you've read the papers saying you need 40% in cirrhosis, 30% in the injured liver, 20, 25% in the normal liver. You've read this paper. These are static numbers. Degree of hypertrophy is better. It's a difference. So when you go from 12 percent liver remnant to 25 percent or 22 percent liver remnant, I'm not worried at all. It's a huge, it's a huge hypertrophy rate. Um, and, and to make it even more precise, we divided um, this number, this degree of hypertrophy, the difference future liver remnant post PV minus pre PV by the number of weeks. Um, number of weeks um, between the portal vein embolization and the second CT. So we divided that, and, and if you get a 10% uh, uh, increase in, um, in uh, let's say, uh, uh, five weeks, okay, it's 2%, 2% kinetic growth rate. It's a speed of regeneration, kinetic growth rate, and that's good. 2% or more, you, you're safe. You can do good. So that's the two-stage, essentially. That's the recipe for the two-stage. And that's what we look at. Um, before before the, the kinetic growth rate, we had a, we had a high rate of hepatic insufficiency uh, after surgery. And uh, we were just looking at absolute numbers. And now we think it's a functional numbers. And, and, and for years and years, 
um, the, the, you know, my colleagues were asking, were saying, yes, but I mean, this is not functional, you know, and it's true. So, but now speed of regeneration, I think, tells you how good is this liver going to regenerate? And if it regenerates, you can have a pneumonia, you can have a bile leak, you could have a, even a high BMI, uh, some steatosis. You know the engine is very good, so you're testing the engine. It's a stress test. So that's a two-stage. But the two-stage, remember, the two-stage is a small number of patients. You know, we, do, we do maybe 15 two-stage uh, and, and in, in, in 15, maybe 20 per year. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's 10% of our patients, maybe a little bit more, but um, it's not a, 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 big, a large number of patients. So when you, you, you hear about the Alps, which has been designed um, as a, you know, an answer to, you know, the fact that not all patients regenerate or patients recur quickly, you have to, you know, you have to, run, 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 rush, and do the second stage quicker. Um, um, the, the, you know, this is, I, I believe patients should get first a portal vein embolization, and then we can discuss it. And if they don't regenerate, or if, if you, and, and that's rare, that's about 15, 10, 15% of the patients, so that's rare, then you should do something else, and there's something else was out, but now we have liver venous deprivation with occlusion of the hepatic veins, which is being done now and can, um, can lead to, a, to a, a, a further regeneration and, and resectability. And that's what we do, in fact. And in some patients, now we do both. We do portal vein and hepatic vein to patients with very small liver, and, and that's liver venous deprivation. You, you can look this up. Any scope of hepatic artery in, uh, infusion pumps? The trial, some of the trials. Can you? So I, you know, I trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I was there for two years, and and I am very familiar with with. Um, uh, and I was in in Kem, uh, Nancy Kemenis clinic, and uh, and when I started, in fact, uh, before two thousand, in fact, uh, my first. Um, uh, faculty position was at University of Florida before um, MD Anderson, and I, uh, I I put pumps for for a few years, but um, with with the advent of um, effective uh, chemotherapy, oxaliplatin, and then and then um, you know irinotec and bevacizumab, Folfox, Folfiri, Folfoxiri plus Bev. Uh, we have a lot of, um, of, um, of um, ammunition and we have, um, uh, I think we, you know, we, we can go from first line, second line, third line. If you look at the patients with, uh, who, who, who receive pump, yes, there is, there is a um, hepatic disease-free survival improvement, but the disease outcome may not be affected in terms of survival. We believe that you know, the, the data are not convincing enough to consider pump with all the uh, attendant uh, problems that are associated with pumps. So I would certainly not put it after liver regeneration. Uh, some centers now 
put it in patients uh, who are not resectable, who recur. That's an option, who have not responded. I think uh, <clears throat> um, you have the option now of uh, arterial infusion of oxaliplatin. We haven't used that, but uh, placing a pump is, uh, is, is, is it's quite high maintenance and uh, high maintenance for the surgeon and for the medical oncologist. And you have to have special people to, uh, to keep up with it. Uh, thank you, sir, for that, for that explanation. I wanted to shift gears a little bit, um, if that's okay. You had already actually started talking a little bit about this. Uh, we were talking about tumor biology and um, the difficulty of stratifying low risk from high risk patients, the value of preoperative medical therapy to assess this before walking into surgery. And you mentioned the difficulty we face with KRAS mutants. So I kind of want to know where are we right now and what do you think the future holds in the context of gene testing, personalized therapy, and medical surgical planning? I understand that you do quite a bit of research on this topic. So, um, so the good news is that we know much more in terms of the biology of these metastases right now. That's the good news. The less good news is that uh, in terms of uh, you know, targeting these mutations, we are really still in, um, in infancy, if you will, because you know, we, we know that you know, we have the only one is, uh, is uh, you know, um, anti-EGFR, the only targeting we can do anti-EGFR in patients, RAS wild type, and, and that's it. So, uh, but I think it's still very important that you, you look at the, at, the, at the biology of the disease. And, and I, I, I was interested in that um, um, because we, uh, uh, we had the opportunity to, to, to do um, uh, a new generation sequencing, uh, testing 20 mutations. It was about uh, uh, 10 years ago. And, and really, I thought I would leave it for my children. And we had... Um, we had um, the opportunity to look at these mutations, and, and, I, and <clears throat> I spent quite a bit of money, um, $50,000 initially uh, um, <clears throat> from an award I had, had received. And um, uh, I, I studied about um, uh, 40 patients, and I found that patients who had multiple mutations had worse survival. And I couldn't tell which mutation was really um, affecting the survival. And then I said, let's do 200. So I spent more money on 200. And, uh, and then we realized that RAS and uh, what RAS was affecting, uh, it was a twofold um, decrease or increase in survival and, and uh, disease-free survival in meta-analysis being confirmed. So that was the first paper on RAS. And then <clears throat> uh, I realized very quickly that um, I was resecting these patients and some patients had RAS mutation were not doing so bad and others were doing terrible. And I had to look at the other mutations, the other genes. And, and, and then by then we didn't have any more uh, 20 gene panel, we had a 50 gene panel. And, 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 and literally, based on a few patients who had very bad outcome with RAS TP53 and some SMAD4, we said, let's study it, let's look at it. 
And then we had medic, uh, papers on uh, advanced metastatic colorectal cancer showing that SMAT4 was affecting survival um, adversely. So we confirmed that in resectable patients. In terms of the TP53, I think it was the forgotten child in there because it was not really part of the, of the uh, spectrum of the uh, suspects um, <laughs> for colorectal cancer, really, truly. Uh, if you look at the studies that were done by, uh, by Schultz at, at Memorial, uh, he looked at TP53, APC, uh, RAS, um, SMAT4, but ignore, um, um, ignore TP53. So anyway, we, we looked at the, at, the, at the commutations and we realized that was really important and one mutation was not enough. So when you see a patient with RAS mutation, is it truly a, a suspect or a bad actor? And uh, in fact, it's a bad actor only if there's co-mutation with TP53 or with SMAT4 when you see a RAS mutation. So that explains why uh, for many, many years, the papers on, on, um, on uh, RAS were not were inconclusive. There were like six or eight papers before our paper where we had 200 patients. We had enough to show a difference. But there were a lot of papers with 100 patients, 50 patients looking at RAS, no inconclusive. So takes us back to the, to the perioperative Fox, you know, inconclusive, conclusive, you know, level one, what are we looking at? I think that's excellent. And uh, before, in, in our, before we, you know, wrap up this episode, um, anything that you would like to highlight, maybe give us a glimpse of like, what do you th think is on the horizon for colorectal uh, liver metastases and the, its management? Right. So I think right now we, 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 we have to realize we're surfing on chemotherapy. We're surfing on chemotherapy. So everything you do should be done in the context of chemotherapy. Whether you're gonna re-resect, whether you're gonna give chemo before you re-resect, whether you're not gonna re-resect. And we use the mutations now, the context of the mutation. I think you should use RAS TP53, SMAT4, BRAF. I think it's four at the very least. You should have them. Uh, there's FBX W77. There's a fifth one we recently published in JOGS. But you should have them in front of you to help you in this context. Because when you stop operating on these patients, you will realize that they come back. And you have to make another decision and another decision. And when is chemotherapy too much? When should you stop chemo? When should you ablate? When should you resect? Because there are cases where you say, no, it's just, it's, it's not good. You know, I would rather ablate. We're not going to spend another five hours. Now my practice, 40% of my practice is re-resection. I have to do a lot of these decisions. Now there's another tool, and I'll conclude with that. Another tool we can use is uh, circulating DNA uh, now. And, and we're looking into that, and that's going to be very interesting. Uh, it's, not, it's not capturing all the patients who will recur, but um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's useful 
And it's going to be useful in designing the new trials. Like, should we give post-op chemo? Should we give Fofox? Or can we just give, uh, you know, Favefu or, or Zilox if the circulating DNA is negative? So there are a lot of um, new avenues there, um, similar to the IDEA trial in primary colorectal cancer. Should you give post-op? Should you give um, six months or three months? So here, we're going to be given three months pre-op. Patients are very happy. They get their chemo. They see the surgeon. And we can de-escalate. And I think that's going to be you know, the new era of interest and significance clinically. And then for research also, patients are nervous. I saw a patient last week very very nervous, uh, is this a node, is this not a node? Uh, before doing the PET scan, um, I said, well, let's do a circulating DNA. The circulating DNA came back today, positive, we'll do the PET scan and we'll, we'll start the discussion. Dr. Mote, that was an excellent, excellent discussion. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this very important topic in surgical oncology. We really appreciate it. You're most welcome. And thank you very much, uh, Michael and Shreya. Thank you very much for the interview. And you have a good evening. And don't dream about livery section and full box. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, dominate the day.